welcome to This Week in Video Games, episode 39. My name's Tom Kershaw, and this is a podcast all about the world of video games. So this week, I've been playing Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order and Lamplight City. I was also lucky enough this week to sit down with Francisco Gonzalez from Grindelwald Games to talk about Lamplight City. I've also been playing around with some PSVR titles and getting ready for Season of Dawn, which drops in Destiny 2 this coming Tuesday. So it's starting to feel very festive in the This Week in Video Games studio, so let's get to it. Welcome to the show everyone, I hope you're well and you're having a good week. I'm good this week and we're in the full swing of the festive season. And this week, I've been up to Glasgow celebrating. So, we're in that lull period after the big games have been released and I'm starting to think about my games of the year and also about the games of the decade. Oh my goodness me, man, that goes fast. Uh, I've definitely missed out on some of the top games this year, like Control, Fire Emblem, Three Houses and Astral Chain. And I'm going to be doing some travelling around the Christmas period this year, so my plan is to catch up on some Switch games while I'm on the plane. Uh, I haven't managed to fit in control just yet, which I really want to do. And uh, let me know what you missed in 2019 and what you wish you had time to play. I'm probably going to be filling up January with some of the games I missed, and I still have to get through the remainder of Death Stranding. Next week, I'm going to be talking Game of the Year, and I would love to know what your top games are of 2019. If you want to get in touch with the show, don't forget to sign up on Patreon, where you can get access to the exclusive Discord server, early access and exclusive audio. You can vote on uh, content and you also get podcast shoutouts as well. So check that out on patreon.com forward slash This Week in Video Games. Right, that is enough waffle from me. Let's get into what I've been playing this week. So this week, I've mainly been playing Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, and I'll get into that review soon. Uh, I'm trying out some new content on YouTube at the moment with Let's Plays, so if you're interested in Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, uh, but don't have a PC or a PlayStation to play it on, then check out that Let's Play on YouTube, and let me know what you think in the comments of the videos. Uh, it's a new thing for me, and I'll put the link to the playlist uh, down there in the show notes. As for the game itself, it's really, really fun. It's not without its issues and bugs, uh, but it could be the Star Wars experience we've all been craving for these past few years. I've also been playing some PSVR and I caught up with an old friend Steve yesterday. So shout out to Steve, Helena, Tycho and Huxley who showed me their PSVR setup. And I have to say, I was really, really impressed. It was much better than I thought it was going to be. And uh, I don't know why I've been so reluctant to get into the VR space. As when you've got that headset on and you get immersed in the world, then it's really, really impressive. So I was lowered down in a cage under the sea, going through the dark depths of the sea, and you could see little kind of things swimming around you. And then all of a sudden, a shark attacked me. And it's like, I think it's like my living nightmare. <laughs> but yeah, really, really fun. And thank you, Steve and Helena. Uh, for hosting me yesterday. Really, really good to see you. And uh, thank you for introducing me to the world of PSVR. I uh, can't wait. Can't wait to dive in. Also this week, Halo Reach was added to the Master Chief Collection, uh, and that's out on PC. Uh, so I jumped into a little bit of um, PvP on PC via Xbox Game Pass, and uh, I'm looking forward to playing through the Reach campaign again. Uh, but I'm so used to Destiny's PvP that anything else just feels a little bit weird to me. Uh, but I am coming around to thinking that Xbox Game Pass is one of my best purchases of 2019. There's so many good games on there, and when you combine that with Project xCloud and their next generation console plans in 2020, 
I think Microsoft is in a great position going into the next generation. There's some top games on there on Game Pass and I'm currently paying $3.99 a month for access to these games on the PC beta. I think it might go to $7.99 when the beta ends. However, my game's backlog on there includes Ape Out, Lonely Mountain Downhill and CrossCode. Not to mention the big Microsoft releases like Outer Worlds, Halo, Gears of War, etc. Uh, so if you haven't checked out Game Pass, I recommend you do so immediately. Finally this week, I've also been playing a little indie title called Peckin' Pixels. So think Stardew Valley and Harvest Moon. It's a cute little management game where you own a chicken farm and you make money by selling the chickens colourful eggs. You can buy all kinds of different feeds for the chickens and you can try and get the elusive rainbow and golden chickens as well. It's a whole lot of fun. Uh, the pixel art is great, the music is awesome and the gameplay is really, really fun too. And the best thing, it's available for free so you can play it right now and uh, I'll add the link down in the show notes. It's made by Waving Walrus Games, and it's available through itch.io, so definitely interested to see what this studio is gonna be doing next. But yeah, super, super impressed with this game. Really, really fun, and uh, I'm yet to get that elusive golden chicken, so that is definitely what I'm gonna be doing, doing this week. But yeah, once again, I'll put the link to that game down in the show notes so you can check it out. So I've been playing a lot this week, uh, but first up, I'm gonna go into a little bit more detail about Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. We've lost. The Empire's hunting Jedi survivors. Now, they know who you are. I can't change the past. You trespass, Jedi. But I'm done hiding. Cal Kestis. struggle. It's the choice to keep fighting that makes us who we are. It feels like a long, long time ago in a galaxy far away since we had a Star Wars game to shout about. We've had the Battlefront series and there was obviously Amy Hennig's cancelled Star Wars game. Over the past few years we've had a deluge of Star Wars properties with mainline Skywalker movies and the spin-offs and it's all fallen a little flat. But now we've got Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order that comes out with a lightsaber swinging. So Respawn, famous for Titanfall 2 and more recently Apex Legends are trying that hand at a new genre, the action adventure game and it often feels like a greatest hits of features from the best games over the past five years. There's hints of Uncharted, Sekiro, Tomb Raider and Metroid in here all blended together with the topping of Star Wars. It doesn't excel in anything in particular but it definitely provides a satisfying feeling and pulls you along at light speed. So the story in Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order goes back to the roots of Star Wars tales with a group brought together to restore the Jedi Order. We've got a gang aboard a ship travelling from planet to planet and they've got secret plans hidden inside a droid, the lovable BD-1. We've got our Jedi hero learning about the Force and regaining his powers. The story takes us across a number of planets, from the homeworld of our hero Cal, where engineers have become scrappers and workers are knelt on by the Empire. There's the rocky Zepho, with its hidden tombs and the lush planet of Kashyyyk, filled with Wookiees. The story may sag a little in the middle, but on the whole it's an action romp that will leave you wanting to find out the conclusion of this very Star Wars story. The events take place just after Star Wars Episode 3 Revenge of the Sith where the Empire is hunting down Jedi. 
You play as Cal Kestis, a Jedi hiding as a scrapper on a planet filled with junk. Early in the game, Cal's force sensitivity is revealed as he attempts to save his work pal from a fall while trying to do an ad hoc job instructed by the Empire. As they attempt to flee, Cal's train is stopped by the second sister and she informs the group that they must reveal the hidden Jedi or face execution right there on the spot. After facing down against the second sister in the Empire, Cal makes his escape with the help of former Jedi Seer and pilot Grease. So gameplay in Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order is a pick and mix of some of the best games we've seen in recent years. There's Tomb Raider style climbing and exploring, there's the skill tree abilities from God of War, and the battle system from Sekiro or Dark Souls. It does all of these things adequately, but not one thing really, really well. Smothered over the top of this gameplay is a layer of Star Wars like icing on a slightly dry cake, so to the layman you probably wouldn't notice the cracks. They are there, but you have to dig under a few layers of fun to find them. The influence of FromSoft games is surprising, so this is Sekiro Lite for the masses, certainly not as punishing as Sekiro from earlier back in 2019, and you more than likely won't throw your controller down in frustration, like many people did for Sekiro. <laughs> as well as the combat system, there's also the meditation points where you can level up and expand your skill tree. So you've got a few branches to fill out with Force, Lightsaber and Survival. So you learn new skillful lightsaber moves like an overhead slash or a neat little kick and a running block. As well as learning new skills through the skill tree, you learn new skills out there in the wild through flashbacks with Cal as a young Jedi Padawan, learning from his master. The combat system isn't perfect, far from it. Enemies rush you, bosses shoot and chase you. If you've ever played Sekiro or Dark Souls, then this might be quite surprising. Someone used to these games or from the FromSoft collection might find this implementation of the combat system a little clunky and imprecise. However, if you're new to this type of game, then you'll likely find this a challenge and fun. So Respawn have attempted their interpretation of a poise meter, whereby you can break an opponent's poise before hurting them with attacks. The poise meter is like a shield, which needs to be broken by either repeated attacks or the right timing. As a Star Wars fan, there's a real sense of fun and the realisation of Star Wars, the experience, is here. Combat is a little janky and there's some bugs with environments and characters popping in. You can't deny it, it's a really fun experience. The sound of the lightsaber, the boss fights, taking off from planets to fly into space feels really visceral. Graphics in the game are pretty good. The character models in general, they look fine. They're not quite up there with the standards of some games like the other latter stage PS4 titles like Red Dead Redemption 2 or God of War. The Wookiees in particular look a little odd and stuck out to me as quite poor. The audio, however, is spot on. As soon as you start up the main campaign, the Empire ships do a flyby, and you hear that familiar screech that is distinctively Star Wars. The score feels like the Star Wars franchise and all the sound effects from the ships to the characters, the sound effects and the lightsabers add up to an immersive Star Wars experience. So I really enjoyed my time with Cal and the gang. The exploration, leveling up skills, the new force powers, and the fighting system really engaged me and gave me that Star Wars experience I feel like I've been missing over the last few years. For me, the last two mainline films have been disappointing, but this feels like an adventure through space which you haven't seen from the Star Wars franchise in many years. There's definitely room to improve here in many areas, but as a first pass from Respawn, this is a solid effort. I didn't enjoy the backtracking in the game. For example, when you search for the planet, you find a temple and discover its secrets. Then you have to find your way out and backtrack, which can take up to 20 minutes to get you back to your ship. Yes, there's shortcuts and they can be opened up, but it would have been nice to be able to travel back to your ship much faster. 
As I've mentioned before, there's a few bugs in the game too, characters and textures popping in and out. Loading times are a little bit of an issue, uh, but I was playing on an original PS4, so I guess that could be forgiven. These certainly weren't game-breaking bugs or problems, but they are worth noting and could have been tidied up by Respawn before release. Overall, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order is one of my top games of 2019. It's simply just a whole lot of fun to play and I wanted to come back time and time again to discover the secrets, to listen to the music and the sound effects, level up my Jedi skills and experience all the set pieces. There was one moment where I was swimming through the water and I had to climb up an AT-AT and uh, you're swinging across the vines, climbing up this huge machine, you bust through the top, you fight the Empire and you take out the driver and then you drive it and start firing on the enemy. It's absolutely amazing. So it may straddle a few styles of gameplay and perhaps it doesn't do anything specific super well, but the way the game blends it all together with that Star Wars sheen is very impressive and you'll be left with an overall feeling of satisfaction. So the developer was Respawn Entertainment, it's available for PC, Xbox One and PS4. Originally released on the 15th of November 2019 and I gave the game a final score of 88 out of 100. So what did you think of Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order? Head on over to patreon.com forward slash This Week in Video Games and sign up. Send me your questions, your comments and your thoughts. I would love to hear what you thought. So if you're enjoying This Week in Video Games, then head on over to iTunes and leave us a nice review for the podcast. It really helps get the word out about the podcast, so if you've got access to iTunes, then I'd really appreciate a nice review. And don't forget, This Week in Video Games has a YouTube channel that goes alongside with the podcast. YouTube channel's got the entire archive of the podcast, as well as dedicated reviews, interviews and features. I'm also doing Let's Plays on there now too, with the full Let's Play of Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. Search This Week in Video Games on YouTube and subscribe today for all the latest content. And if you want to see anything specific on YouTube, sign up to Patreon at patreon.com forward slash This Week in Video Games. It would be great to hear from you. But next up, I've got an interview with Francisco Gonzalez from Gundeslav Games, creator of Lamplight City and the new upcoming title Rosewater. So let's go to that interview now. Welcome back to This Week in Video Games and I'm here with Francisco Gonzalez. Welcome, Francisco. How are you doing? Hi, thanks for having me. I'm doing great. How are you? Pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. And uh, gearing up towards the festive season at the minute. And and I guess we're both in, so I'm in London and you're in New York City and it must look, must be kind of looking beautiful there this time of year. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the... The department store window displays are all up and the uh, the decorations are going up. I don't think they've lit the tree, the big tree at Rockefeller Center yet, or maybe they have. I don't know. I don't really keep track. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's funny because I've been living in New York for, it's been six years now, and I have yet to spend actual Christmas in New York. I always go back down home to South Florida for, for the holidays, so I get a warm Christmas every year. Um but I'm sure someday I'll spend an actual Christmas in New York. Must be a nice contrast to the kind of uh, chilly weather of New York City. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, yeah, it, it was, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, it used to actually get cold at Christmas, but now it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start off on a depressing note about climate change. Uh, <laughs> well, I guess uh, at least we can wear shorts at Christmas, so... <laughs> I suppose. I, I still see, I, I saw a guy, uh, Thanksgiving uh, was a few days uh, last week, it was a few days ago last week, and it was pretty chilly, and I saw a guy, oh, there goes my heater, speaking of which, uh, I saw a guy wearing shorts, and I was like, 
what is what is wrong with you? It's like freezing outside. How can you deal with this? <laughs> I've never understood how people can wear shorts in cold weather. But there's a, there's always one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Francisco, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. I thought we'd kick off and uh, talk a little bit about Lamplight City and. Uh, I've been um, I've been playing through Lamplight City, really, really enjoying it. I'm a massive fan of adventure games, but I was wondering, for those who don't know about Lamplight City, could you tell us a little bit about it? So Lamplight City is a point-and-click detective adventure set in an alternate uh, 19th century. Um, I say it's an alternate 19th century because the setting is the United States, which is not called the United States of America, rather it's called the Commonwealth of Vespuccia. And the idea is that it is a uh, world where the British colonies never declared independence. And so, much like Canada or Australia, it's still a Commonwealth uh, country that's divided into eight states governed by a prime minister. Lamplight City is the uh, nickname of New Britannia, which is the capital city of, of the country, which is where the game takes place. And New Britannia itself is a combination of uh, kind of the, the the highlights of settings of uh, Victorian era or detective fiction set in the Victorian era. So it's a little bit of New Orleans, it's a little bit of 19th century London, a little bit of 19th century New York in this sort of uh, eclectic mishmash of uh, a fictional city and a fictional world. And there's a little bit of steampunky elements thrown in as well, but not not anything super exaggerated like people walking around with like mechanical arms or or top hats with goggles or anything like that um it's really more just like a backdrop thing um but i mentioned it's a detective game and the, the plot of the game is that you play as a police a former police detective turned private investigator named miles fordham who after a uh tragic event during the prologue of the game begins hearing the the disembodied voice of his dead partner um, and he's not sure whether he's actually being haunted by the ghost of his partner or whether it's just his he's he's going insane and his guilt is sort of manifesting itself as this voice. But he does know that, or at least his, his the voice of his dead partner tells him, that if he manages to find the person responsible for for his partner's death, then it'll, it might be possible for his, his, uh, his voice to move on. And so he basically spends the game solving some cases that he figures solving these cases might give him uh, some leads or some clues into finding this uh, person he's looking for. And so the bulk of the gameplay takes place over these five cases. And each of the cases has multiple suspects and possible leads to follow. Um, and I sort of described it as a an, an, uh, detective game where it's okay to fail in that the game doesn't actively hold your hands to push you towards the right solution like some other detective games do. But if you screw up um, and you find yourself in a situation where you've closed off all your leads, rather than being stuck in a dead-end situation that forces you to restart or reload, uh, the cases can just be declared unsolvable and then you move on to the next case. But of course, doing that will have an effect on certain narrative uh, elements of the story. And uh, you mentioned there um, the game set in a kind of alternate history in um, New Britannia. And um, Sat, what was your kind of inspiration for that alternate history? Well, when I first got the idea, it, 
it's always hard to describe because when I talk in retrospect about games and ideas, I can never really quite pinpoint where the idea specifically comes from. But I know that with Lamplight City, I definitely wanted to make a detective game where it was possible to get things wrong. And I knew that I wanted to make it in this in the 19th century and I wanted it to be influenced like by the by Edgar Allan Poe and Charles Dickens and I thought okay well I can either do this and set it in Victorian London but then that means that if I do voice acting I'm going to have to get an all British cast <laughs> um, which is a little outside of my abilities um, or I can just make it interesting and create rather than stick too much to historical fact I can just make an alternate history and do my own thing because um, I kind of learned with uh, the game I did two games prior a golden wake which was actually based on historical fiction I found that I tended to stick a little too closely to histor history and sort of um, emphasize that over the characters and things like that so I felt like being free of that burden would help me. Uh, so that was that was in part why I did it. Or probably a major part of why I did it, honestly. Well, it's really good. It's a really, it's a unique twist. And uh, it, well, definitely, thank you. it definitely sets uh, Lamplight City apart. And uh, you, you also mentioned before, when, when you were um, telling us about the game, um, so the main character, Miles, um, and his, his partner, Bill and they've they've got a quite unique uh, relationship because of the incident that happened. I don't want to spoil it too much, but mm. there is a there is an incident at the beginning of the game. Mm -hmm. And um, so, could you tell us a bit more about um, about Miles and Bill's relationship? Yeah. So at the start of the game, uh, basically we're uh, joining them on a pretty mundane case, uh, and it sets up the fact that they've been they've been partners for about fifteen years. So Miles is kind of more the slightly more straight-laced by the book detective and Bill is more of the Joker kind of, you know, he's been doing this for a long time and he's kind of not really checked out, but he doesn't take it as seriously as Miles and he's always about, you know, let's get this done so we can just go to the pub and hang out and get drunk and have a good time. Um, and Bill is always offering up snarky comments and things like that. Uh, so when he dies, uh, <laughs> spoilers, um, not really because that's the, the pretty much driving force of the game. Um, so when he dies, he, he keeps on doing the same thing. That's same things he did when he was alive. He still cracks jokes. He still makes comments, but he's also a little bit more of a nagging force in that he's constantly telling miles, look, find this guy, find this guy, let me move on. And miles of course starts becoming a little unhinged because he doesn't want to tell anybody that he's hearing this voice obviously especially it takes a toll on his marriage and the relationship with his wife because he worries that if he tells anybody he's going to just get locked away and not be able to uh find this guy he's looking for so um so he's his life kind of starts coming apart because he realizes that the only way that he can successfully quiet Bill's constant voice is by taking a sleep medicine. Um, so he's kind of out of it at the beginning of the game, or when we catch up with him after the incident, uh, where it's established that he's he's hearing Bill's voice, um, we see that he's 
he's pretty much just taking this medicine and he's kind of in a stupor most of the time and he sleeps in and he's still kind of solving cases, but he's not working at 100%. And then throughout the course of the game, that changes and he finds another way, which I won't spoil for those of you who want to play. Um, and yeah, so it, it kind of, Bill Bill's effects start um, untangling Miles' life and he has to, that's sort of another incentive for him to uh, to help Bill move on as much, as quickly as possible. Uh, I like the way Bill, because um, uh, when I finished the first uh, case and I, I'd actually accused the wrong person in the first mm. case and Bill sort of sits Miles down and said hey Miles you know we need to we need to talk and you know you really need to up your game if you're going to take on more complicated cases and I really like that um, mm. it, it it really shows the uh, the the, the character it it shows the um, the heart of the characters how they uh, you know, they they clearly kind of care about each other, uh, and they're pushing each other forward to to do better. So I, I really love that aspect of the characters. Well, thank you. Yeah, that that was interesting because Bill mechanically Bill serves as the game's narrator. Because I mean, usually in point and clicks, if it's uh, if you don't have like a narrator like in the old Sierra games, like a an omniscient uh, either first or third person, or actually it's usually second person. Because they're usually like, you do this, you do that. Um, usually in those games, you have either that or you have the main character kind of talking aloud. And it's never really established a lot of the time whether they're talking out loud so that any character in the vicinity can hear them. Or whether they're just sort of thinking to themselves and it's just presented as them talking. Um and in a lot of the in a lot of the Sierra games, or well, at least in like Leisure Suit Larry and Space Quest, the more comedic games, there were instances where the game broke the fourth wall and had the main character and the the disembodied voice of the narrator kind of either argue or have some sort of discussion or something, and it was always played for laughs. So with Lamplight City, when you look at stuff. Bill is the one that's narrating because it's presumably what Miles is hearing in his head. But then there's occasions where they do have these discussions with each other, but it's not played for laughs. It's played for, oh, wow, Miles is actually talking out loud and, oh, my God, what if somebody hears him, you know? So that was that was a fun little way of subverting that and playing around with that dynamic. And um, I, I really like the, uh, the, the, um, the dialogue kind of in the game where, you, where you've got the the, um, you've got each character kind of on screen and talking. I was really impressed with the character models and um, how it um, matches up with the script and uh, things like that. How how did you go about doing that? Do you mean the uh, the portraits or the yeah? So the oh <laughs> the portraits. I had the brilliant idea to lip sync them because <laughs> oh, here's a cautionary tale. Um, yeah. So basically. Uh, when I was coming up with the game, obviously, uh, I'm a big fan of Gabriel Knight, the Gabriel Knight series by Sierra, and especially the first game, Gabriel Knight, Sins of the Fathers. And I make no uh, illusion of the fact that I completely lifted the aesthetic for Lamplight City from the first Gabriel Knight game. Um, I mean, you have your protagonist with shaggy hair with a long coat, <laughs> but I mean, that could be, that also could, you know, he looks like, he looks like Benedict Cumberbatch's Sherlock. He looks like, yeah. uh, he looks like Neil Gaiman. He has, he, he has that prototype, just grizzled white guy with moppy hair with a long coat. Um, 
which you know whatever that's fine but as far as like the uh the sort of letterboxing of the backgrounds and the close-up portraits against the black screen i totally took that from gabriel knight because i like how it looked and also because it's an aesthetic you don't really see very much uh, so it, it, it's not like you know it, it's sort of still even though it was used in another game it's at least still somewhat unique um and also in a game where the majority of the gameplay is focused on questioning and interrogating people, I thought that having a close-up of their face would be important because you're obviously talking to them. So having them in a wide shot with sprites or even just like the character portraits against the backgrounds wouldn't really make sense because, I don't know, it, 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 just, it just felt like it would take away focus from the, uh, the dialogue. But anyway, um, so because of that, uh, the the previous two games that I had done, A Golden Wake and Shardlight, they had character portraits, but the character portraits weren't animated. Um, in previous games I had done before I got into the commercial dev, I had done animated character portraits, but you know I hadn't put too much effort into them because they were freeware games. Whatever, we can talk about that later. But um, but I felt that it was important to have the characters' mouths move. And double that, I felt it was important to have them be lip-synced because I had done lip-syncing before, but I had never done lip-syncing in a game of this size. So I kind of underestimated the amount of work that it was going to take. Um, so this game had about 8,000, a little over 8,000 lines of dialogue, half of which had, were uh, close-up conversations which had to be lip-synced. So about 4,000-something lines of dialogue had to be lip-synced. I used a program called Pamela Lip Sync, which basically, it wasn't automated. Basically what it does is you load up each individual line of dialogue, you type out what the text is, it breaks it down into the phonemes, which art-wise you had to uh, draw the different frames of the characters' mouths in different positions and then link them to a particular set of phonemes. So it was about 10 frames per character, um, which was... That, that part was easy. Um, but then once it's broken down into phonemes, you had to manually drag each one along the waveform so that you could sync it up perfectly and then test to make sure. Yeah. So <laughs> so I was, I was working. I thought it was going to take me about a month to do all of these things. It ended up taking me three months. Um, I was working about 10, 12-hour days towards the end. And I was averaging about 20 lines per hour, even working very quickly, wow. which for 4,000 lines, if you do the math, that, yeah, it took a long time. So I was pretty burned out by the end of Lamplight City, and I was like, I am never doing this again. <laughs> um, and of course, I'm doing lip syncing in my current game, but I've found a way to automate the process, which is so much easier. <laughs> but yeah, to answer your original question, that was the process. And I think it adds an element to it. I've had a, I've, a few people have said, oh, wow, I really like the lip syncing, which is great. It makes all of that work worth it. Because, yeah, it was a lot more work than I anticipated. Yeah, no, I was I was I was really impressed by it, and uh, it definitely shows the the love and passion you kind of put into the game. So no, I, I congratulate you on that. It looks looks fantastic. Well, thank you. I'm very glad you appreciated it. I'm <laughs> extra glad to hear that it was worth it. <laughs> and um, you you mentioned also in your description of the game, so um, you you wanted it to be okay to kind of fail a mission and not kind of put any blockers um for the players they don't have to restart and i wonder if you could tell us a bit about the uh decision behind that kind of design mechanic 
Yeah, so it basically stemmed from uh, playing two games. One was L.A. Noir, and the other was Sherlock Holmes' Crimes and Punishments. Um, and both games are detective games. Both games, uh, you know, focus on the investigation and narrowing down the evidence and things like that. In L.A. Noir, uh, it tends to push you towards the right solution no matter what. And Sherlock Holmes' Crimes and Punishments, you're allowed to accuse the wrong suspects, but there aren't really any discernible consequences uh, when you do that. And I'm the type of person who, if a game offers you a choice of how to play it, like you can either be a great, you can, you can play the game perfectly or you can just be a complete jerk or whatever. Generally, when I go through the game the first time, I try and go for the best possible outcome. And then for fun, I'll go back and see what happens if you play it just completely as a jerk. Um, so I played, when I first played L.A. Noir, the bane of my existence was that little trill when you would get the question, the interrogations wrong. Because I was like, no, I have to solve this perfectly. So <laughs> I would stop and reload and go back and do them until I got everything perfectly. And I was like, yeah, this is great. I'm the best detective ever. So then when I was, uh, when I was doing research for this game, I went back and I played it and I purposely failed every single interrogation. And I found that it made absolutely no difference whatsoever because if there was, say, a particular clue or piece of evidence that you had to coax out of a suspect, if, even if you failed the interrogation, the game would still give it to you. Like, the, there, I remember there was, um, I think it was one of the DLC cases where one of the, one of the things is you have to collect uh, several... Uh, silver dollars that have a particular piece of like some sort of imprint on them and one of the characters that you can interrogate if you interrogate him successfully he gives you his silver dollar but then if you if you fail as they're taking him away your partner comes over and they're like oh look we found this on him and they give you the silver dollar anyway so it's like okay well that was pointless um so i thought okay well if a game is going to do that it should have some consequence same thing with like whenever you got into a chase with somebody in la noir whether a, a car chase or a foot chase if if you got too close or if you failed it the game would stop and say oh you you failed press x to try again so i thought well what happens you know what would happen if you were playing a game where you were trying to chase somebody and they got away and you didn't have the opportunity to do that you then had to find either some other way to get the evidence you need or that particular lead was closed off. So that, that kind of got me thinking. Mm -hmm. And then the same thing with Sherlock Crimes and Punishments. Like, you had these multiple leads to follow and multiple potential suspects, but then if you accused the wrong one, all that would happen would be you'd get, like, a nasty letter from the someone related to them in the next case or something, but it wouldn't really affect the story. So I thought, okay, I want to make a game where... You can do that. You can accuse the wrong person. You have to actually do detective work to um, to succeed. But if you play the game as a complete jerk, it shouldn't punish you for it. So, like, if you play the game as a and you're just mean to everybody and you close off all your leads, then the game shouldn't punish you. It should just continue onward, but acknowledge the fact that you've been a bad detective. So. Yeah, so that that was basically what informed that decision. 
Well, it's, it's really good. I, I, I really enjoyed my time with Lamplight City, and I, I recommend everyone who uh, everyone who's listening now, if you haven't played Lamplight City, go out there and uh, and get it. And um, so, how and where can players get hold of the game? So, Lamplight City is available on Steam. It's also available on GOG and the Humble Store. Uh, you can go to lamplightcity.com, which is my official website, which has all the links to all the places you can purchase it from. Um, yeah, and actually, it's getting an update uh, very soon. We're, I'm rolling out a free update. For those who already have the game, it'll just automatically update. For those who haven't played the game, it'll come already packaged it's going to be a uh, developer commentary mode so you can get all the behind the scenes information and stuff um which usually the games i do have that included but i figured i'd save it this time for that all important visibility update um as well as i think it's it, it was interesting to to do commentary a year after the game was already out to kind of have it less fresh in my mind and be able to to talk about it a little bit more objectively. And uh, so you recently started up a newsletter. I did. I did. I, uh, yes. I, uh, yeah, <laughs> I did. I, uh, I, I, I only mentioned that because I got your um, newsletter about the, the update. Uh, the, when you just mentioned the update there, um, uh, went off in my mind. So I thought, yeah. So... Um, uh, how do people sign up for your newsletter? Uh, well, you can again, you can go to grundislavgames.com and scroll down to the bottom. There's a little uh, there's a little form to fill out, or you can just go to tinyletter.com slash forward slash grundislav. That's G R U N D I S L A V, and you can just sign up there. Or yeah, you can follow me on Twitter, and I tweet about it. But we'll save that for later i guess <laughs> <laughs> well that's um francisco that is the perfect transition into the next question um i wanted to um move away a little bit from lamplight city and talk about um grindislav games uh, mm -hmm. so your 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 company and so um how long how long have you been running the company well company is a very generous uh description because it's basically just the name i came up with for me um, but as far as how long I've been using the name to make games, uh, I guess probably starting in 2004 or so, um, I actually just, I picked up Adventure Game Studio, which is the, the engine that I used, um, in about 2001 and I started making little games here and there. And then I decided, okay, I like doing this. Let me, let me come up with a little name. Uh, so I came up with Grundislav Games, um, which, for, for in case you had the question, uh, Grundislav is apparently the ancient Germanic form of Gonzalez, according to my history, my eleventh oh. grade history teacher. Okay. Yeah, and and it sort of became my high school nickname, so I adopted it as my online uh, name. So um, yeah, so so I started doing a, a series. I decided to really commit to to making games, and uh, I started a little a little series called Ben Jordan Paranormal Investigator, which is where I started actually adopting the name Grundislav Games. Um, and then, yeah, I just basically used it as my my handle and continued using it uh, while making both my freeware and my commercial games, with the exception of one. <laughs> but um, yeah, oh, that, that that's awesome. Um, I was wondering, um, so 
in in terms of your process for kind of coming up with um, games, what what's that like? Do you um, do you do a lot of prototyping? Do you do you do a lot of writing? How does it? What what's the process like for you in terms of coming up with your with your next project? So that that kind of uh, as far as the the development process, it's varied from game to game. Um, I used to basically just make everything up as I went along. Um, I about a few games into the Ben Jordan series, I decided that it was important to start actually keeping track of ideas, and so I started making design documents, which I would just open up a blank Word document and start writing down ideas and sort of organizing them and figuring out, you know, what the story beats were going to be and things like that. Um, and ever since then, I have been just trying to develop on paper uh, as much as possible before I start putting the game together. Which basically means I'll write down, you know, I'll write down the setting, details about the setting, uh, the characters, what they're all about, like little interesting things about them, um, a basic outline of what, what the puzzles are going to be, uh, and what the story is going to be, and how it's going to go. Um, and then usually I'll start building the game because my my priority when developing is always to have the game in a fully playable state from start to finish as soon as possible. Usually that means it's just, you know, lots of placeholders, lots of just sketches for backgrounds and old sprites for characters and really terrible placeholder dialogue. Um, but the, the one thing that's changed... Uh, especially for the current project I'm working on is usually I would write all of my dialogue on the fly in Adventure Game Studio um, and then I would go back and tweak it later as necessary. Uh, but with Lamplight City uh, I worked with a uh, narrative consultant and dialogue editor so she basically edited my script but what that meant was that I had to copy and paste everything from Adventure Game Studio into a Word document, which was tedious, and I had to reformat everything. So this time around, I decided I was going to write out all of my dialogue on paper first before ever putting it into the game so that I would only have to do the whole copy-paste thing once. Um, and also because I felt like it would be a lot easier to just edit and refine everything and have it, you know, more or less set in stone before committing to putting it into the game um but as far as like just getting ideas and stuff i mean it varies i'll just you know i'll sit there and think i get a lot of my ideas in the shower uh that's a very inspiring place to to get ideas uh i'll just like pace around the room and think okay what how do i do this what's what problem do i solve here um I'm actually currently trying to figure out uh, a, a series of quests and how to make them relative to the story and how to uh, make them relative to the characters and their arcs. So that's that's been fun. Um, yeah, and, and I mean, also, as far as getting ideas for games, I've been very lucky in that, for instance, with the Ben Jordan games, since I knew it was a series, I kind of had a map of how the whole thing was going to go and I had an idea of what each I always knew what the next game or at least the next couple of games were going to be um, and ever since then I've been just trying to instill the idea in myself of always have one or two projects or potential projects in the pipeline so thankfully I've been able to come up with an idea for what I want to do next 
midway through or close to the end of production for the game I'm always I'm currently working on. So like, you know, I came up with the idea for a Golden Wake fairly close to the end of the Ben Jordan series. I came up with the idea for Shardlight while I was still working on a Golden Wake, Lamplight City while I was doing Shardlight, and my current game Rosewater came to me pretty early during the development of Lamplight City. And the game I want to do after that, I already know what I want to do, so so yeah, I've, I've been lucky so far. Uh, and knock on wood, it'll keep being that way, because I dread the day that I have finished a game and I'm like, well, what am I going to do next? I have no idea. <laughs> And you mentioned the uh, Rosewater, your new your new project. Um, and uh, are there any details that you can share about that project? Sure. Yeah, Rosewater is a Western drama um, set in the same world as Lamplight City. And I emphasize Western drama because most Western point and clicks are comedies in the vein of like Blazing Saddles. Uh, more slapsticky stuff. I don't recall if there's been a point-and-click adventure western that has not been like that. So uh, hopefully that'll it'll be a unique selling point for Rosewater. But anyway, yeah, it's set in the same... Uh, it's set a few years after Lamplight City. It's not a direct sequel. It's more of a, a sidequel because you play as Harley Legere, who is Bill's sister. Um, and so it's an adventure story about Harley coming to the town of Rosewater and getting involved in this treasure hunt with this uh, ragtag posse of, uh, of characters. And, uh, yeah, it's basically a, a point A to B story and stuff happens along the way and twists and turns and hijinks ensue and all of that stuff. <laughs> and uh, I understand you've been doing some dev streams recently. Yeah, yeah. So part of the part of the hype building machine, and also because you know I like to get feedback from from the fans and the public and stuff. Yeah, I've been I've been doing a few uh, streams on Twitch where I've just done uh, well, mostly art so far, mostly art and animation. Um, towards the end of I, I did some for Lamplight City as well. Towards the end, I was also doing some of the uh, the voiceover editing on live stream. But, uh, yeah, I've been doing those. Uh, I Twitch TV slash Grundislav, if you're interested in checking those out. Um, but, yeah, I, I find that it's a fun way to connect with fans. And also, for my own personal selfish reasons, streaming is good because if I know that people are watching, it means I have, I'm less likely to get distracted and check social media. And so I can stay focused on my work. Um, so it has, it has multiple purposes. It's it's also it's a really good way of kind of um, building the relationship with your audience, and you're kind of um, showing you're working and getting, like you say, getting feedback early. Mm. And um, it it's it's one of the um, I know streaming's been around for um, a good part of a, a decade now, um, but it's one of the innovations in the industry that's kind of really. Um, revolutionized things over the last kind of um, yeah the, the last 10 years or so and uh, yeah so it, it's, it can be used in terms of developing um, a relationship with the audience and marketing but also um, it must be really exciting when you put your game out there and you see people playing it on Twitch or Mixer or um, uh, or YouTube gaming and stuff like that yeah, it is. It is and it isn't because it's always terrifying to watch people play your game because you're always paranoid that even as much testing as you do, 
someone might discover some horrible bug or something. Um, I generally like to stop in when people are streaming and say hi and stuff. Um, but yeah, it's yeah, it's definitely uh, a thing, and it's definitely something that you have to keep in mind. That was partly also why uh, Lamplight City has the whole multiple uh, solution thing because. Admittedly, streamers don't necessarily, especially for indie adventure games, I don't think they really have a huge effect on sales or, or popularity or anything like that. But I feel like if you make a linear game where if someone streams it and, and the audience sees the whole thing, then they might not have much incentive to go and buy it and play it themselves. Whereas if you have a game with multiple paths or or things uh multiple solutions things you might not see necessarily on one playthrough then it might give a little bit more incentive uh for people who watch them on streams to go and play the game themselves and talking about kind of um innovations in industry like streaming um what's what's the um what's the kind of biggest change that you've seen in the industry um, related to um, uh, an independent kind of games publisher like yourself? I think it's just the oversaturation of the market, unfortunately. That's, that's the one big... There's just so many games out there and it's so hard to get noticed now. Even with an established audience, it's still tough to get that attention. Um, I read an article the other day that just was funny but also made me sad <laughs> that was something like, here's why you should never publish your indie game. And it was just like a month-by-month -month breakdown of why it was such a terrible month to publish. <laughs> and it was basically every month is terrible. Um, so, I mean, it was written tongue-in-cheek and it was kind of like, you know, this is what you should be aware of and why it's going to be extra tough, but whatever. Um, so, yeah, I think that's 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 for the worse of it uh the biggest change i've noticed and um we've we've got an interesting time coming up over the next 12 months with we've got the new kind of generation of consoles coming out mm. and um we've got um streaming services kind of seem to have um cut through this year and um i've whenever i speak to um game developers i always ask them about what what they think about streaming services and what effect that they think that's going to have on the industry so um with things like um google stadia and uh, apple arcade what was your opinion of the kind of streaming service future for video games i'm still a little bit skeptical honestly uh i was at gdc this year when they had the big stadia reveal and it didn't really seem like it was met with much enthusiasm and in i don't know whether that's because people thought oh that's this is gonna not be good for us or if it was just because nobody really cared um and it seems like in the subsequent months it i don't know it just it feels like it's you're just even stadia is having trouble with latency issues and if google who has like the most powerful servers can't get a decent connection how is that going to be for joe public with you know their not great connection. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I I remain cautiously optimistic that it won't ruin the indie dev scene. I mean, I wouldn't mind if a company was like, hey, we'll pay you X amount of money to develop a game for us. I don't see that happening. Um, or, I, you know, if a company's like, oh, hey, we'll, we'll pay you based on time played or whatever. I don't know. 
But yeah, I, I, I'm skeptical and I don't know where it's going to go, but we'll see. I was skeptical about VR and I, I still don't know where we are with that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think Valve are hoping um, Half-Life yeah. Alex is going to uh, maybe come in and save the day. And <laughs> Yeah, I don't know about that. I'd, I'd rather have In the Valley of the Gods, personally, but exactly. hey. Oh, that's awesome. Well, um, Francisco, I've, I've taken up plenty of your time today, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us on This Week in Video Games about uh, Lamplight City, um, Grindislav Games, and also about your experience in the industry, and definitely looking forward to Rosewater. Can't wait until until that comes out. Well, I completely appreciate you having me on, and it was a pleasure. And uh, we're going to be dropping a, uh, a teaser trailer and a Steam page for Rosewater early next year, so uh, look out for that, everybody. And uh, just finally, um, before, before I let you go, um, what's your um, social media, and uh, how can people kind of get hold of you? You can find me on Twitter. I'm um, at Grundislav Games. Again, that's G-R-U-N-D-I-S-L-A-V Games. Uh, my website is grundislavgames.com, where you can find all of my freeware games for download, as well as links to all of my commercial games for purchase. Uh, you can also join the Grundislav Games Discord server. Uh, I don't have the link readily available for that, but I tweet it fairly often. Um, as well as signing up for the newsletter, as mentioned before. And I think that's everything. There's way too much to keep track of these days. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so complicated these days. <laughs> it really is. You really have to, like, hustle yourself and hire, like, a, a social media manager. It's crazy. <laughs> And uh, I guess the final thing to say, um, as we are kind of uh, close to tis the season, so I, I wish you all the you know all the best for for Christmas, and I hope you have a wonderful Christmas. Have you got any nice plans? Likewise, um, I you know basically going down to Florida to to sweat and to see my family. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, how, how about New Year's? Um, I guess, yeah, we were just saying before there, I, it's the end of the end of the decade. So uh, do you head back to New York for, for New Year's? Yeah, I'll be here for New Year's. I'm not doing the Times Square thing because I've never done that and I never plan to do that because that yeah. just seems crazy to me. So I'll probably just have a, might have a little get together here at my little basement dev dungeon or, uh, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, um Francisco, thank you so much uh, once again for taking the time to talk to us. And like I said before, everyone go out there and check out Lamplight City. And uh, yeah, keep your eyes peeled for that uh, teaser for Rosewater coming soon. But um, thank you once again, Francisco. And thank you, Tom. Well, that was me there talking to Francisco Gonzalez from Grindislav Games. And thank you, Francisco. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you and some great insight there in the gaming industry, what it takes to make a game, and really, really looking forward to the new title, Rosewaters. Make sure you keep your eyes peeled for that teaser trailer dropping early in 2020. So thank you once again, Francisco. Fantastic to talk to you. So next up is my review of Lamplight City. This is the killer's fifth victim, and there isn't a single lead. So you want me to investigate? You hear the voices of the spirits as well, Mr. Fordham. I don't hear the voices of all spirits. Just one. What do you know about Madame Dupre's supposed You death? know anything about the murder that took place outside the side? Have you heard of the justice killing? 
Why have you been passing on classified police information to Mr. Fordham? Because he's the best detective you ever had on the force, and you know it. Dumas, open this door right now. Why would I kidnap my own son? I'm innocent, Mr. Fordham. You have to believe Why me. is he called the Justice Killer? The man don't care about the dead. He just wants to make as much money as he can. I guess we all have our dark secrets. I swear to you, this was a one-time mistake. You won't see me like that again. You're not going crazy on me, are you, Miles? So Lamplight City is a point-and-click detective adventure game from Francisco Gonzalez, set in the mid-1840s of an alternate past. Your partner is dead, and he's in your head, and it's up to you to solve the case. So this is a classic detective adventure game, very much in the style of the LucasArts games of the mid-90s. The art style, the gameplay, and the music are familiar and comforting. The objective of the game is to deduce who done it across a number of cases. However, there's a twist here in Lamplight City that you can accuse the wrong person, and this can have consequences down the line for the outcomes in the game. As such, you can play the game on the straight and narrow, good cop style, or you can choose an alternative route, and you can get a little bit stupid and see how you get on. Lamplight City is set in an alternative past in New Britannia, set in a version of the 1840s. Steam technology is a major technological leap of the era, and a new technology called Aether City is up and coming, but many residents of New Britannia are sceptical and stick to traditional methods. So the game starts out with Miles Fordham and Bill Ledger, detectives with the New Britannia Police Department. You play as Miles, and together with Bill, you're investigating a seemingly normal case at a local flower shop. There's been a break-in, and the owner is suspicious of how and why someone is breaking in, stealing lilies and leaving money behind. Miles and Bill wait out in the shop for the thief to come back, and Bill chases the robber onto the roof. Bill gets caught by the thief and is held at gunpoint and urges Miles to save him. Miles tries to talk him down but ends up shooting Bill while trying to save Bill, and he falls from the roof to the pavement below. So we cut to three months later to see a dishevelled Miles getting out of bed. He's been fired from the police department and Bill is still hanging around as a voice in Miles' head. Your objective becomes clear. You've got to solve the mystery to who was breaking into the forest all that time and on the roof that night which led to Bill's untimely demise. Poor old Miles though, he's really stressed. He's got Bill hanging around constantly nagging him to solve the mystery. He's keeping him up at night and the voices can only be quieted by a combination of booze and sleeping pills. And this is also putting a strain on Miles' marriage, further adding to the daily stress. Although Miles has been officially given leave from his role at the force, he's got some friends there drip-feeding him some cases off the books. And that keeps Miles busy and slowly works his way towards his ultimate goal of solving the murder of his partner and friend Bill. The writing in the game is really, really good, with Bill offering up quips and commentary aplenty to Miles as he goes about trying to solve the cases. The dialogue is progressive and critical of homophobia and racism that is still apparent in the era. The gameplay in Lamplight City is similar to other point-and-click adventure games where you have to navigate around space, click on the items, pick up clues, and you'll use those later to solve puzzles. Here the controls are nice and easy, left-click to click on a thing, which is contextual. You've also got your casebook, which contains clues as to where you have to go and what to do next. The interesting part of Lamplight City is you can make the wrong deduction, and you, then you can proceed through the game as normal. The objective here is to gather clues and evidence while working with your former partner Bill. There's five cases to solve and you have to work out what's going on with the situation. And once you're confident, you make a deduction and aim to close the case. 
is possible to accuse the wrong person, and while you won't get a game over, you may have some story elements locked off to you later on in the game. It does give the game a certain amount of replay value, albeit it's not immediately obvious. Lamplight City graphics are heavily inspired by Monkey Island or Simon the Sorcerer, with the characters designed in a fantastic pixel art render. Backgrounds in the game are dark and dank, which fits the mood of the game perfectly. Although the game isn't incredibly large, what we have is realised extremely well, and the art is beautifully done. The audio in the game is done really well, and in a game like this the voice acting is really important. Luckily here it's done really well, and the lip syncing on the character models is also done brilliantly. Overall, I enjoyed my playthrough with Lamplight City, and the puzzles are interesting. Premise of the game is really neat too, where you can go down the wrong path and the game doesn't hold your hand too much. It may be lacking overall wow moments, but fans of the point and click genre will have a great time with this game. So it was developed by Grundislav Games, it's available on PC, and it was originally released on September the 13th, 2018, and I gave the game a final score of 78 out of 100. So what did you think of Lamplight City? Head on over to patreon.com forward slash thisweekinvideogames and sign up there and send in your questions, your comments and your thoughts. I would love to hear what you thought of the game. Well that's it for Lamplight City and next up Bungie released the Season of Dawn trailer this week so let's have a look and see what we've got in store for the new season in Destiny 2. You've been busy, Guardian. the undying mind, you change the course of history. Now time is broken on Mercury, fractured by the Legion. They intend to write a new history, a new ending to the Red War. If you're willing to help, you'll need to walk the corridors of time. You'll need my sundial to do it. I built it so that an ally of mine could cheat death. I failed to help him, and his death remains my greatest regret. They call me the greatest titan who ever lived. Sky down upon them. So the seasons are changing in Destiny 2, and the season of dawn is only days away. So we've got a different seasonal model in year 3 of Destiny 2, and the story is ever evolving and the world is changing as the seasons progress. So Season of Dawn sees the return of our time-travelling warlock Osiris, a new six-person activity, new weapons and armour and other incentives to keep us playing. 
So the season of undying is coming to an end and we've been battling the undying mind for a few weeks now. Over the course of the first season in Destiny 2 Shadowkeep, we've been kept busy with the Vex in the raid and in the form of the Vex offensive. So Ikora, she was busy building a portal which teleported in the undying mind. However, since we've been killing the undying mind, Osiris senses danger and he's emerged from the infinite forest to help us to save a long lost Titan friend in Saint 14. So it looks like we're going to get some new story content and cutscenes, however how that's going to be delivered to us is unclear as yet. So the Season of Dawn's content is bound to be smaller than the Season of Undying as the previous season was also tied into the Shadowkeep content drop. Now we've killed the Undying Mind over thousands of timelines, time is now broken on Mercury and the Cabal Scion Flayers are looking to exploit these issues and undo the victory against the Red Legion from the original Destiny 2 campaign. A specific event has been called out on the roadmap called Save a Legend which drops on the 17th of December. Osiris is going to try and turn back time and save his former friend Saint-14 and Saint's been a legend in the game since the beginning with the helm of Saint-14 in the game since the original Destiny 1 days. There's also a paradox in the game lore related to Saint-14 and that reads A tale that's different from the rest, the thread unfurls against the clocks, the one the speaker loved the best must have a perfect paradox. I never found Osiris, but I've killed enough Vex to end a war, and they, in turn, struck a fatal blow. They completed a mind with the sole function to drain the light from me. It worked very well. Don't worry, not that you worry too much. It took them centuries to build, key to the unique frequency of my light, and I sit atop its shattered husk. I mourn that I'll never be able to reach the heights that you have. To me, you represent everything a guardian can become. Yours is a thriving city, so different from mine. My whole 14th life I fought to make my city yours. I never finished. All I have is this weapon. The Cryptarchs say you crafted it yourself, built it out of scraps and light and sheer will inside the infinite forge. I'll make sure it finds its way back to you. And when you gave it to me, I swore I'd make it my duty to follow your example. I'm still trying. Saint 14. So this lore was introduced during Curse of Osiris expansion back in year one of Destiny 2 and relates to the perfect paradox shotgun. It's likely that in this expansion we'll interact with Saint-14 and give him the gun, only for him to die once again somehow. It will be exciting to find out what happens in this storyline as he's always been a fan favourite in the lore. Osiris has built his sundial which is the basis for the six person activity this season. This match made activity looks really similar to the menagerie, so you can travel across timelines in Mercury to the past, present and future and battle against the Cabal. It will be interesting to see if this has the variety of the menagerie or it will be more like the Vex offensive but we're hoping for more like the menagerie. The menagerie was the best version of this activity we've seen, closely followed I think by Escalation Protocol. The Vex offensive fell flat and wasn't varied enough, so hopefully Bungie will have learnt from this and had time to develop something that keeps players coming back time and time again. So over the course of the season, it looks like there's going to be variety added to the Sundial. We've got different bosses like Oslect, the Sky Piercer, Tazarok, the Sun Eater, and Inatam, Oblivion's Triune, and they're going to be added as bosses throughout the season, and they all look like formidable Scion Flayers. There's also Legends Sundial mode, presumably a hard mode, coming early in the new year 2020. Now, as with previous activities like this, we're going to get to choose which weapons to earn by completing time-lost weapon frames. So there's going to be new weapons, armour and ornaments on offer. We've got seasonal armour to chase as well as new Saint-14 ornaments to cover. 
So last season, I managed to pick up the seasonal ornaments week by week with Bright Dust. So you don't have to go in there necessarily and purchase stuff with silver. There's also two new exotic quests on offer with Devil's Ruin on the 7th of January and Bastion on the 28th of January as well. We're also getting a new artifact, the Lantern of Osiris, to progressively unlock new mods for our armour. And it looks like this season there's going to be a focus on long range weapon play. PvP is being thrown a few meagre bones with Elimination Mode returning. We've got Rusted Lands coming back from Original Destiny and this one has always been a fan favourite. And Iron Banner is returning on Christmas Eve. Some had been hoping for Trials return but with so many issues in the game right now the community kind of flips back and forward from wanting Trials and not. Back in the summer Bungie did say that Season 10 would be the season where PvP would come into focus so it would be interesting to see this season if any more foundations are laid for the future and perhaps the return of Trials of Osiris. There's going to be two seasonal events this time too with The Dawning and that's Destiny's Christmas-like event and Crimson Days, that's Valentine's Doubles PvP. Last year in The Dawning they introduced the Cookie Oven which laid the groundwork for the Chalice in the season of Opulence so these events do give Bungie the time and room to experiment and try new things. And hopefully we're going to get the return of SRL which is the Sparrow Racing League in The Dawning and that was there in the original Destiny 1. Really hope that comes back. And that's the Wipeout style racing mode, which is a whole lot of fun. As with the Season of Undying and the Season Pass, there's a paid for track and a free track. So if you pay for the Season Pass, you get instant access to the new exotic Scout Rifle Symmetry. You get the new six person activity, the Sundial, exotic quests, armor, ornaments, season lore books, exotic emotes, finishers, and other Season Pass rewards. There's plenty of content for the free track too, with season rank rewards, uh, you've got the seasonal artifact, the Lantern of Osiris. You can help Osiris fix the timeline by restoring the obelisks on the four destinations. You've got seasonal armor set Righteous and progress through the season ranks to earn the exotic scout rifle symmetry as well. So lots to look forward to there too and uh, I think we have to temper expectations with the Season of Dawn. We are probably not going to get as much content as we did in Season of Undying so definitely set your expectations at the, uh, at the right level there. Well that's it for Season of Dawn and next up let's have a look at the all-platform charts. So in the all-platform charts this week it looks like it's heavily influenced by Christmas gifts because at number 10 this week we've got Marvel's Spider-Man which is a re-entry. Number 9 this week down three places from last week's number 6 it's Luigi's Mansion 3. Number 8 this week it's Pokemon Shield and that's down three places from last week's number 5. Holding steady this week it's Mario Kart 8 Deluxe and I think it's going to go the whole calendar year staying in the top 10 and I think it is the most popular game on Nintendo Switch, definitely the most successful. At number 6 this week is Pokemon Sword, that's down 3 places from last week's number 3. Number 5 this week up 15 places from last week's number 20, it's Minecraft Xbox Edition. Number 4 this week up 15 places again from last week's number 19, it's Sea of Thieves. Number 3 this week down 1 place from last week's number 2, it's Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. Number two this week, down one place from last week's number one, it's Call of Duty Modern Warfare. And back in at number one this week, it's FIFA 20, which was last week's number four. And congratulations to the team at EA for getting back there to the number one spot. And yeah, it definitely looks like this chart is influenced by Christmas. And uh, well, on next week's show, we'll see what gets the coveted Christmas number one. Well, that's it for the charts this week. Let's see what we've got coming out in the next few weeks.
So we're winding down now in the game release schedule, and we've got a few games coming out in the next few weeks. So we've got Ashen coming out on December the 9th. That's coming out on PlayStation 4 and Nintendo Switch. On December the 10th, we've got quite a few games. We've got Dragon Quest Builders, that's coming out on PC. We've got the Hearthstone expansion, Descent of Dragons. We've got MechWarrior 5 Mercenaries, that's coming out on PC. We've got Narco, Rise of the Cartels, that's coming out on PS4, Xbox One, Switch and PC. And finally, on December the 10th, we've got Terminator Resistance, that's coming out on PS4 and Xbox One. On December the 12th, we've got Detroit Become Human, that's finally coming to PC. And on December the 17th, we've got Wattam, that's coming out on PS4 and PC. Well, that's it for this week's episode. And if you want to get involved in the show, contact me through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash This Week in Video Games or check out the latest on the website. Send in your questions, your comments, and your video game stories. I'm always interested in hearing from you. I'm also available on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram to search This Week in Video Games on your favourite platform and join in that conversation. Well, thank you once again for hanging out with me and chatting about video games. I hope you've had a good week. I'll talk to you in a few weeks' time, but for now, I will see you soon.